Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Just how bad is the Republican assault on trans rights? I'm Emily St. James, and I'm a senior correspondent on the culture team at Vox. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. So, I'm terrified. Yeah, yeah, what else is new? A lot of stuff in the world right now is terrifying. But as a trans woman living in the United States, it sure seems like there's an all-out assault on the rights of people like me that's going on right now. In red states all over, Republican-controlled legislatures and governors are turning their full attention to the rights of trans kids. Transition-related health care, particularly hormones and puberty blockers that allow trans kids to live their lives as themselves, has come under attack. In particularly draconian fashion, the governor and attorney general of Texas issued orders that effectively say parents who affirmed their trans kids' genders are child abusers. Saying the gender reassignment surgeries and the use of drugs like puberty blockers can legally constitute child abuse. In the letter, Governor Abbott calls on teachers, doctors, and nurses to report if they think these treatments are happening. And multiple state legislatures have introduced bills to make it a felony for doctors to provide trans-affirming health care to minors, and in some cases, to people over 18 years old as well. Alabama Governor Kay Ivey bans transgender health care for minors. Arkansas passing a bill blocking gender-affirming care for trans youth. It would ban access to things like reversible puberty blockers and hormones. Anyone who violates faces a felony punishable by up to 10 years in prison. This is not on the fringe. In fact, it's all mainstream stuff in Republican-dominated legislatures across the country. And even when bills are vetoed, as happened when the governor of Utah vetoed a bill banning trans kids from playing high school sports. Governor Spencer Cox will veto a controversial bill banning transgender children from participating in school sports. Legislatures could very well override those vetoes. Which is exactly what happened in Utah. Today, state lawmakers banned transgender athletes from girls' sports in Utah schools, despite Governor Spencer Cox's veto. So, you know, I'm terrified. But I also live in California, where protections for trans residents have actually been strengthened across the last decade. That's a thing that's true in multiple blue states. So how do I make sense of this all-out assault on people like me that's happening, but only in some places and not in others? I've reached out to Chase Strangio, the Deputy Director for Transgender Justice with the ACLU's LGBT and HIV Project to help understand it all. We talk about how bad it already is, how bad it might get, and how all of us can better help trans kids. Chase, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. 
I have been following anti-trans legislation for as long as I've been alive. But in the last, you know, 10 years, we've gone from these bathroom bills, which are trying to keep trans people from using the bathroom, along to like trans sports bans, which are in essence, you know, making sure that trans kids can't play on high school and college sports teams. And now, you know, we're in the space of like increasing healthcare bans and other things like that. Can you give us a sense of like, the evolution of this and also like where things stand right now. Yes. Well, I think the modern history of anti-trans bills really can be traced back to 2015. And that was when the Supreme Court decided Obergefell v. Hodges, which was the decision that struck down remaining bans on marriage equality. And from there forward, you really see all of the resources, all of the discursive and policy momentum that had been focused from the right on stopping marriage equality for same-sex couples being immediately transferred to attacking trans people. They were swift, they were agile, they were aggressive, and we were sort of, as a mainstream LGBT movement, not as responsive and adaptive in our ability to protect trans people. Because if we look at sort of the resource allocation of the LGBT movement up to 2015, trans people had been largely uh, left behind. And so after Obergefell's decided, you have this very aggressive backlash, which leads to, in 2016, the proliferation of the anti-trans bathroom bill, where you have HB2 in North Carolina becoming law. When you see someone who is obviously a man, regardless of whether they're wearing a dress or not, I think a woman in a restroom where she expects to only be with women or a girl who expects to be with girls has a right to feel uncomfortable about that. The transgender people are creating the problem by pretending to be the opposite of their actual biological sex, even when people can see that they are their biological sex. See, but that's but the, I per- that's point the pretending It's also the though. final year of the Obama administration. At that point, his administration and his Justice Department and education department in particular are taking more aggressive pro-trans policy positions with respect to Title IX and other federal laws prohibiting sex discrimination. And so the backlash sort of begins to escalate even further. And then you have sort of this period of time between 2017 and 2020, where states are not as effective in moving anti-trans bills. Okay, so what was happening between 2017 and 2020 that slowed states' efforts? I think first is the sort of unfortunate reality that they had an ally in the White House at this time. And so federal policies were also anti-trans. And so there was less incentive at the state level to push anti-trans bills when they could rely on the federal government to maintain anti-trans policies. And also the movement is responsive and able to pivot, thankfully, and start centering trans people, start pushing back on the bathroom bill discourse. Governor McCrory in North Carolina is defeated in 2016, possibly the only Democratic victory that entire election cycle, in part because of his support for HB2 and the bathroom bill is sort of repealed and replaced and then ultimately neutralized in court. So there is a period of time where there's still a lot of aggressive pushing of anti-trans bills and rhetoric, but not the level of success behind them. So what changed between now and then that led the right back to pushing new anti-trans legislation? I think what happens in 2019, 2020 is you start to see our opponents on the right really, again, adapt and pivot. And this is in response to some, I think, testing that they're doing in the messaging space, particularly in right-wing blogs and right-wing media, Fox News, Ben Shapiro, The Federalist, and other places where you start to see the emergence of this anti-trans discourse in the context of sports and the context of healthcare with a very significant focus on young people. 
This is a dude competing in men's weightlifting competitions, takes a master's in, and now you can compete with the females. And now we're going to pretend that this is an even playing field. The 43-year-old had competed in men's weightlifting competitions before transitioning in 2013. This is a dude who is a full dude in every respect and continues to be a full dude just with either some surgeries or some hormone therapy. You can't become a female after being a male. That is not physically possible. And while they're adapting their messaging, adapting their policy positions in 2019 and 2020, I think that once again, the mainstream LGBT movement is not similarly adapting. We are not proactive, despite the sort of warnings, despite the fact that we can see what's coming. Ultimately, we're not really prepared for it. And what happens in 2020 in particular is that you start to see the introduction of new bills targeting trans people. And this is where we see the first set of model legislation with the sports bans. Um, And these are sports bans not just targeting high school and college. They also target elementary and middle school. And then the healthcare bans, which in 2020 is when we see the first sort of efforts to criminalize healthcare for transgender adolescents. And by the time it's 2021, we're really in a position where the momentum is on the side of moving this legislation. There's a new backlash now in 2021 to the election of President Biden and 2020, as well as to the Supreme Court's decision in Bostock in 2020. So we're facing down this incredibly aggressive anti-trans movement in states. And we find ourselves in a situation now in 2022 where 17 states are banning trans kids from sports. Three states are banning healthcare for trans minors, two of them through criminal regimes. And I think we can expect things to get much worse Mm -hmm. as we approach the midterms and as we approach the 2024 presidential election. You mentioned Bostock in 2020. And for those who don't know or remember, the case was Bostock v. Clayton, and it was a landmark ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court, which held that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act protects gay or transgender employees against discrimination. Mm -hmm. So, Chase, there are dozens of these laws, but I want to call attention to a few of them here. First is the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida. Can you walk us through that one? With Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill, I will say one of my greatest frustrations is the attention that that bill got as compared to years of bills targeting trans people that got very little attention comparatively. And of course, that bill is a bill that was passed by the Florida legislature, signed by Governor DeSantis. And there's a lot of different threads of policymaking that lead to Florida's bill. And of course, the talking points from Governor DeSantis and the Republicans pushing that piece of legislation are, oh, you know, it's just K through three. We just want to protect young children from discussions of sex and sexuality, which of course is not at all what it does. It prohibits mention or discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity, which if they knew what they were talking about would prohibit almost anything that is discussed in a K through three environment because everyone has a sexual orientation and everyone has a gender identity. So really, they shouldn't be discussing then families, mothers, fathers, parents, girls, boys, anything. And as a parent of a elementary school student, I can say that much of what happens in K through three is sharing about yourself and your family. And so if the idea is that LGBTQ people and kids from LGBTQ families cannot talk about themselves or their families, then that is a significant problem for how we create affirming and loving and safe environments for our young people. I think the way that Governor DeSantis talks about it, you would think that this is a bill that 
sort of bans overly graphic descriptions of sex topics in kindergarten. But of course, what it actually bans is someone from saying, I have two dads or my father is trans. And that's really what we're talking about here. And that, of course, things like developmentally appropriate are not clearly defined ideas and the chilling effect is substantial. And we've already seen the fallout with teachers and students across the state of Florida and invite censorship, it invites bullying, it invites stigma. There's lots of reasons to be concerned about it. That said, it received a disproportionate amount of press coverage while bills were simultaneously pending that would do things like make healthcare that trans young people need a felony and threaten to remove them from their loving and affirming homes. So I do think there's a way in which the fact that cis gay people were targeted, the fact that this was about discussions of families and sort of could be connected more to same-sex marriage and things that are a little more comfortable for the mainstream non-LGBTQ community to digest. So Alabama did pass a felony ban on healthcare for trans adolescents up to age 19. And that ban on healthcare includes as well a provision that requires school staff to out uh, young people who are exploring their gender or identifying as trans to their parents. The very same thing that caused quite significant outrage when it was proposed in the Florida bill was largely ignored um, when it passed and became law in Alabama attached to a bill that makes it a felony punishable by up to 10 years in prison to treat transgender adolescents with standards of care medicine up to age 19. Right. So walk us through the law in Alabama. Alabama passed this year on the final day of their legislative session, this bill that will make it a felony for trans adolescents to receive gender-affirming health care. And sort of what that means is that if a young person is with the support of their parents, with their own consent as a minor, and with the recommendation of their doctor, prescribe either hormone therapy or puberty suppressants, which are part of the standard treatment protocols for adolescents with gender dysphoria, that their doctor and their parent could face up to 10 years in prison. Obviously, this is a substantial escalation of the attacks on trans people. There will be no healthcare provided in the form of hormones and puberty suppressants if that care is a felony. The clinics that provide it will have to shut down. People will not be able to get that treatment in state. And this uh, type of legislation, I would say, is very much modeled after the anti-abortion legislation, sort of targeting doctors who provide care, targeting the people who receive the care, and sort of creating this false narrative of harm um, and protection when in reality, the laws are the things causing harm. The healthcare is not. And so that bill was rushed through on the final day of the Alabama session. It was in effect for about a week. And at that point, it was enjoined in court. Okay, so that law is currently blocked. But what is happening in Texas with Governor Abbott's executive order? In 2021, the legislature had considered a bill that would have deemed the provision of gender-affirming care to minors, a form of child abuse, that would cause parents to be investigated and anyone else to potentially be criminally liable for child abuse for supporting and affirming transgender adolescents in receiving that treatment. That bill did not pass. Legislators who had been proponents of the bill were frustrated. Um, they had asked Attorney General Ken Paxton to issue a, a legal opinion that such forms of treatment were, in fact, child abuse. Eventually, he did do that. Attorney General opinions are non-binding. So his opinion was just his opinion. It could not change actually the law. And in fact, the legislature had failed to change the law when the bill was proposed. 
Unfortunately, this all happened in the lead up to contested Republican primaries, and both Ken Paxton and Governor Abbott decided to escalate the situation. And Governor Abbott issued a directive following Ken Paxton's opinion letter directing the so-called Child Protective Services Agency to consider gender-affirming care a form of child abuse and ordering the agency to start investigating parents and families with transgender adolescent children. And not only that, the governor threatened any mandatory reporter, which includes any member of the general public, with criminal prosecution if they don't report on the possibility of a transgender adolescent receiving gender-affirming care. Even at that point, however, I and other advocates really did think that there was not going to be a change in actual practice because neither Abbott nor Paxton had the legal authority. However, the agency itself decided to order investigations. And unfortunately, within days of Governor Abbott's directive, families started being investigated just because they had adolescent transgender children who were suspected of receiving gender-affirming care. And so we, the ACLU, the ACLU of Texas, and Lambda Legal immediately went and filed a case in state court and were able to block the directive for a period of time statewide. Unfortunately, that has been narrowed for procedural reasons on appeal and only our immediately named plaintiffs are currently protected by an injunction. And we have recently heard that the state intends to restart investigations into families. So things are dire. Certainly in Texas, that's one of the scariest places because not only the parents, but any member of the general public could be subjected to either criminal prosecution or child abuse investigations under the so-called child welfare regime, people are living under significant fear all the time. And that is just a level of escalation that I have to say I did not really see coming at this stage. And if you think about how perverse it is, I mean, they're claiming that we don't know that these treatments are, you know, how they would describe it beneficial, even though that's wrong. We do know. But even under their theory, they claim there's not enough evidence of benefit to justify the provision of the care and that there needs to be more research to understand the balance between the harms and the benefits. So even accepting that premise, which I don't, we do know that removing children from their homes is harmful. Like that, there's a lot of data on. And so I think it's just such a perverse reality to think that they are willing to do something that is known to be harmful under the theory that the treatment they don't want young people to receive might be harmful, which I think just highlights that it's not really about that. And I think that at the end of the day, all of these bills, whether it's the sports bans, the don't say gay bills, the criminal healthcare bans, the healthcare bans under civil penalties are really about trying to stop people from being trans. And that is their goal. We know it's their goal and mobilizing their political base, but I think it's both things. And obviously you can't stop us from being who we are unless you kill us. And I think, unfortunately, that does at times seem like the goal. Right. You know, speaking now as a trans adult, I can say that when I was a teen in the 90s, I did not receive gender-affirming health care. And I was, I was in a really dark place. I was in this place where I was disconnected from myself, feeling as though I was just sort of on the brink and forcing myself to put on a, a happy face for everybody else. So these health care bans to me are specifically very frightening because if you took my health care away from me now— I would be right back in that place. And I didn't like that place. I wouldn't want to go back to it. Yeah, I do want to just reiterate too, it's like, especially for, for those of us who are trans who have had our lives just saved by this 
care. It's just the gaslighting is so incredibly profound to have people look in your eyes and you're saying like, this helped me. And they're like, no, it didn't. And, and that's what they're saying to the young people too. These young people are testifying like, I was completely just unable to exist in my body in this world. This made it possible and I feel so good. And they're like, no, you're wrong. You have no agency. We know what's better for you. We know what's better than your parents know, which coming from the right is really, really ironic given that the entire Republican Party platform right now is focused on parental rights, except if you affirm your trans kid. Then you have no rights as a parent. So I just want to say it's really staggering, especially for trans advocates to have to be confronted with this really perverse discourse and being told that we don't understand what we actually know to be true about ourselves. We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, can anything be done to stop this? Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear Secret Sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. You mentioned that there are some court challenges here. What have the courts done and what might they do in the future? In terms of sort of what can be done, how do we stop it? Obviously, we are filing cases. We're not going to let a healthcare ban stand. It's not a sustainable situation. We know the degree of the harm. We have to try to go into court to stop it. And that has been somewhat successful in these preliminary stages. So we have been able to get injunctions in district court or in the Texas case, in the trial court, in state court. And we are arguing, depending on the context and depending on the particular policy we're seeking to enjoin, they violate the Constitution, they violate the equal protection rights of trans adolescents, they violate the fundamental rights of parents to direct the care and custody and well-being of their children, which is a longstanding fundamental right under the federal and all state constitutions. And that is one way to delay some of these things. I think that there is a lot of reason to be very concerned about what's going to happen as these go up in the courts. Because if you look at the Supreme Court and you look at the appeals courts, they have changed dramatically. I think if anyone has been following the state of play at the Supreme Court recently, we have a six to three conservative court. I don't think there's any reason to expect that of civil rights, constitutional rights of trans people or any LGBTQ people or anyone for that matter, except for white Christian 
straight people are going to be protected. So the use of the courts is definitely a tool. It's a delay tactic. It's a line of defense against what we're seeing, but it is not going to be the transformation here. We're going to have to organize. We're going to have to change the conditions that we're living under. We're going to have to change the political calculus for lawmakers so that these bills become toxic over time, which is a collective effort, which is a cultural effort, which is a public education effort. We're going to need to take care of each other. I mean, trans people have been getting each other healthcare for ever. And that isn't to say that we want to go back to that place, but it is to say that we have the tools. We know how to care for each other. We know how to organize. And we have to do that because we may not be able to protect ourselves from encroachments by the state. You know, as the state becomes increasingly rightward leaning, increasingly fascist, then you can't count on things like checks and balances to limit state violence. That is not going to be a functional system to the extent it ever was. So I think we have to do, it's a both and situation. The courts are available to us. We must use them. They are a harm reduction tool, but we cannot expect them to be the ultimate place where we either find our liberation or we can guarantee a block to very violent encroachments by the state. What about the executive branch? Can the Biden administration do anything on this issue? And and if they did, how effective do you think that would be? We're in a tough spot. And part of why we're in a tough spot There's a million reasons, um, and they are central to the organization of the country, and we can go back in time and sort of, (laughs) it would take forever. Um, But I think also, if you look at the last 20 years, you can see that Congress has been largely ineffective. Having a federal legislative branch that is ineffective has increased the power of the federal executive, which is why over the last 20 years, we've seen a lot of executive action through executive orders under administrations of both parties. And then what happens is you expand executive power as such, and then you have the opposition party, so to speak, trying to stop that action by the executive in court. And so it's a battle between the executive and the judicial branches, and very little happens. And we saw this where every Obama-era policy was challenged in court, you know, and blocked largely. And then people tried to block Trump-era policies in court, and it's just this back and forth. Obviously, I want to see robust action from the Biden administration, but I don't think the answer is necessarily through identity-based protections. Instead of seeing things like the Equality Act, instead of seeing executive orders that are designed to protect trans people from these types of encroachments, which all of those things will be immediately challenged in court. But what we really need are student debt cancellation. We need housing vouchers. We need COVID relief. People need material survival needs because part of what's happening is the ways in which the state is suppressing the vote, restricting access to abortion, enhancing discrimination in a host of ways. One way to fight back is to increase access to healthcare for everyone, to increase access to resources for everyone. And we know that when you have a federal government that enhances benefits programs, that decreases debt, that intervenes in discriminatory healthcare policies, that that will ultimately be the place where our community then can mobilize resources more effectively, make sure that people are having more survival opportunities. And that, I think, would be the most effective way to see the Biden administration intervene instead of saying we love and support trans people. That is important. I want to see that too. But that, I would say, is not the only thing that we need. And I think the movement's sort of fixation on formal legal equality and rights-based interventions like the Equality Act is unfortunately, from my perspective, largely misguided. I think it's an over-expenditure of resources with minimal return in a system that even formal equality doesn't get you much because the system itself is so flawed. 
I also want to ask you about Roe v. Wade. If Roe is overturned by the Supreme Court, as the court seems poised to do, does that make the fight to protect trans people's autonomy even tougher? Is there any connection there? So there's the practical connection and then there's the legal doctrinal connection. So I think practically speaking, you know, as to both abortion and trans healthcare, if you ban it, it doesn't go away. It just becomes harder to get, less safe, less available. So those practical realities are really similar. If you ban hormones, people will just use less safe hormones. They'll share hormones. If you ban abortion, we know that it just means people will get it in different ways. And we know that to be true. That, I mean, and bans in general are an incredibly ineffective tool. And doctrinally, We've been protecting trans healthcare and access to healthcare for trans people largely through a quality-based argument. So that it's sex discrimination to target the care, that it's trans status-based discrimination to target the care. I am not really familiar with successful privacy-based arguments or fundamental rights arguments with respect to healthcare for trans people. And so if Roe, when Roe, whether explicitly or sort of by default, is overturned by the court and the doctrine is abrogated or completely eviscerated, which is likely, that isn't necessarily sort of taking the doctrinal legs away from trans-related claims. They are really different. That said, I think that what the overturning of Roe really does mean is that we have a court that is willing to act ideologically to get to an end goal, regardless of the underlying theoretical principle justifications for getting there. And so that is one reality is that the overturning of Roe means that anything is susceptible because the court is just going to do what it wants. Doctrinally, overturning of Roe and sort of the substantive due process doctrine being eviscerated as it likely will be doesn't have the most direct impact on trans-related claims because they are largely not pursued under a right to privacy theory, with the exception of maybe some of the ID documents claims, the claims around access to identification that affirms who one is without overly burdensome surgical or other medical requirements. I mean, some of those cases are tied to the same set of substantive due process rights, whereas the challenges to state laws targeting trans people are really based more on equal protection. That said, that doesn't mean that that's not the next thing to go. I don't think we can say that anything is safe under this court. So there's lots of reasons to be concerned. I think the other thing is people are concerned that, oh, well, every single sort of fundamental right is likely to be eviscerated in the wake of the overturning of Roe. I think that is probably not accurate. Um, I think we are likely to see different attacks on different protections, whether it's marriage equality or contraception access. We've already seen voting access completely eviscerated. And so they're all connected. And I think all of the things are under threat, but they're each a little different. And I think that the privacy right itself is not going to be completely gone because the conservatives still like it sometimes. They're arguing for a right to privacy not to share space with trans people. So we have claims by cis people or cis young people, usually brought by themselves and their parents, arguing that they have a federal constitutional privacy right to go to the bathroom without a trans person. So they're not ready to totally abandon the right um, if it serves them. That isn't to say that the court would be principled. They might give that right to a cis person to not share space with a trans person, but not to a pregnant person to access an abortion. Yeah. A question I get a lot from cis people is, 
what is the legal argument that's being made here? Sort of like, if we can figure out what the argument is, we can refute it, we can point out the hypocrisy, we can whatever. And I'm always like, well, let's go back to right after humans stopped being hunter-gatherers and started inventing the concept of gender. Like, you have to go back that far. Yeah. But I am wondering, like, what is the legal argument? Like, is there a way to push back against it on those grounds, or is it just sort of changing the way people think about gender societally? Yeah, I mean, I think it's both things, right? Like, and they're not separate from each other because the people who are deciding legal cases are human beings living in society. It's not like they are robots and computers applying some principle that they themselves like have no thought about. And so on some level, the way that we change the conditions in which we live is to change how people think and what people feel and how people contend with their fear of change. Because so much of backlash is power reacting to what feels different. And so partly we're we're making legal arguments, but the legal arguments themselves are predicated on people believing that something that they're being told is not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. And there's obviously this very significant investment in the idea that there is a sex binary that is fixed and predetermined and that it cannot be changed and that undermining it is a threat because it creates anxiety. And this idea that people can self-determine their identities is very threatening to people. And there is a huge effort to stop us from having the cognitive tools like access to information and education and historical information, as well as the medical tools like access to hormones and access to surgery, access to puberty blockers, because of a fear that people will have to contend with the reality that the world is more complicated than they thought. Mm -hmm. And until we help people be more comfortable with the idea that the world is more complicated than they were told, that they want to tell their kids, we are going to continue to face these battles. And the law is we can make legal arguments to refute them. We can say it is unconstitutional to target trans people. We can say it's illegal to target trans people. But part of the way we do that is to say the state doesn't have an interest in stopping people from being trans. And in order for the courts to believe that, especially the conservative courts that we're often going to be before, we do have to change people's reflexive reaction to this idea that we need this investment in the sex binary. We need to know from the moment of birth or the moment of conception, sort of, are you having a boy or a girl? And then how will we attach meaning to that infant's body? And then how will we organize society and the family around those binaries? And that investment is very, very significant. And we do have to change people's orientation to it if we are ultimately going to be successful. How do we change that calculus? Because I have found living my life publicly as a trans person, being out on Facebook to the people I grew up around South Dakota, they see me and they're like, oh, you know, she seems great. She seems fine. She seems really happy. But they can't like connect that back to the version of me they knew as a teenager, who they knew as a quote unquote boy, and see like the connection there. It is sort of this weird double bind where my existence as a happy trans adult then says, well, they should take the time as teenagers to figure out what they want. And I'm like, no, 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 please, please let them do what they need to do. So I am wondering, like, is it just me talking more about the pain I was in? Because I'll do it until the cows come home. But I feel like that sends a different wrong message. I think partly there's not one answer. I mean, because it's not just trans people who have 
sort of a responsibility to challenge this investment in the sex binary because it's actually hurting everyone quite substantially. And, you know, it's hurting cis gay people who are tormented from a young age or not, but who are told that you're not the right kind of boy or you're not the right kind of girl. It's hurting cis girls who are straight and just seen as gender nonconforming. It's hurting heterosexual couples because the sort of caretaking responsibilities are disproportionate. And this idea that there is a simplicity to sort of how we understand our bodies in relation to our performative characteristics, as well as to societal power structures is somehow fixed and predetermined. And so I think it's really on everyone to push back and sort of say, well, maybe we can just be more open and expansive. And wouldn't that be more liberatory for all of us? And Mm -hmm. obviously it's not going to happen overnight, but I do think that it can be as simple as just instead of every time someone says they have a kid, instead of saying is a boy or a girl, like, why not say how old are they and what did they like? Isn't that actually more useful information? And if you're like, I'm going to a four-year-old birthday party and a store says, is it a boy or a girl? As if that gives you more information instead of saying, what are they interested in? What kind of person are they? And I think that we are all served by being a little less overly deterministic about the sex binary telling us everything about someone. And that I think actually will go a long way. If we start to break down those assumptions and start to help people be less invested in the idea that all you ever need to know about someone is like whether they had a penis or a vagina at birth based on what the doctor thought they saw. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, people are saying that they don't want to be reduced to their body parts. And yet so much of the backlash is overly reductive in this idea that all we ever need to know about someone is what type of genital characteristics they had at birth. When like, I personally would like to believe that a lot about me has changed since 39 years ago when I was born. I am not an infant who's seven pounds in the care of my parents. And I have evolved quite significantly. And in fact, I would say that the most significant aspect of my evolution is not necessarily the fact that what people perceive my sex to be has changed. And so it's just sort of like being more nuanced in our conversations. And that's one of the things I've always loved about being queer. And one of the things I love about being trans is that our self-awareness has at least the potential to be more expansive because we are saying, well, yes, the world expects this thing. And I, yes, I understand it is thought to be natural and predetermined, but I know that that's not true. And I've had to fight back against that. And as a result, I have a lot of insight into myself. And that is a gift. I think that it's sort of a combination of trans people and others talking about their pain that the sex binary has imposed upon them and also talking about the beauty they have found in sort of being who they are. And I think that will serve us all. Yeah, I know, uh, I think a four-year-old who has a Lightning McQueen and a Barbie and they're married and they go on adventures. And that's like the energy I want to bring to my life all the time. (laughs) Totally. going to take one last short break, but when we come back, why is the idea of trans joy so threatening to so many people? There is this wave of young trans women who are, you know, sort of famous. You have Hunter Schaefer, who's on Euphoria. You have Nicole Maines, who was on Supergirl. You have Kim Petras, who's a pop star. They all start a transition either as children or very early in adolescence. They all, you know, they pass 
to use a really reductive and fraught term that has a lot of weight within the trans community. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much of the recent legislative efforts are driven by the idea that if you force people to go through the wrong puberty, then you will always be able to mark them as trans in the minds of people. Now, that that's not always true. I transitioned in adulthood, and I tend to go out into the world, and people see me as a woman and don't misgender me anymore. But that is sort of paranoia that I have, that lawmakers on the right are essentially saying that, well, we need to preserve the sex binary, and therefore, we need to be able to instantly tell if somebody's trans. But please, tell me I'm being too paranoid. It's not too paranoid in the sense that there is a goal of putting us in an impossible situation all the time, which is why, on the one hand, you have bills that are saying, well, we have to ban trans girls from sports because once they go through puberty, they are always forever going to have these so-called physiological advantages. And then at the same time saying, well, but we will also make it a crime to block puberty. Now, well, it's like, well, which is it? You want them to be included and not have these so-called physiological differences that you believe to be so deterministic in this space, which I wouldn't concede or agree with at all. But that's one part of the language. And then at the same time, you have people saying, well, yes, I actually don't want to go through my endogenous puberty. And they're like, well, you can't do that either. Mm -hmm. You can't block that and you can't play sports and you actually can't exist. So, you know, I do think it's just this moving target and sort of one of the things that I often talk about. And I am just so endlessly harassed on Twitter and elsewhere because I say things like there is no such thing as biological sex as a legal concept. And there isn't. (laughs) Biological sex was not something as a category that emerged in the law ever until 2016. There was sex. We just had sex. That's what it was. Biological sex is not a legal concept. It was first codified in 2016 as an effort to ban trans people from the bathroom. And actually, the definition of biological sex that has been proposed in legislation has changed every time a trans person can meet the definition of biological sex. They're like, oh, actually, that's not the definition of biological sex. And it's a moving target designed for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to stop trans people from accessing single sex spaces and activities that align with who they are. And so in that sense, it's not wrong to be paranoid that this is all a system set up to make sure you fail no matter what, because it is, in fact, a system that is ever-changing to be adaptive to the idea that cis dominance and the sex binary are necessary and always to be enforced. And so I think that there is a fear that trans people will find joy, that actually like the miserable trans person isn't the thing they're afraid of. It's the happy trans person. It's the person who has a loving family, who's able to access healthcare and then be on euphoria. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is both Nicole Maines and Hunter Schaefer were plaintiffs in lawsuits. You know, Hunter Schaefer was our client and plaintiff in the HB2 lawsuit in North Carolina, where she's from. And Nicole Maines challenged from the time she was in elementary school, restrictive policies that tried to ban her from the bathroom as a kid. And they did both transition at very young ages and then ended up being sort of normatively beautiful. Um, And I think that is really scary to people who want to tell us all that there is something called biological sex. It is determined at conception. It is always true and that you can always tell what someone's biological sex is. And the reality is that it's not true. It's not true for cis people. It's not true for trans people. And the more people feel like they're losing control over that reality and that narrative, the more scared they are. And the more happy trans people they see, the more threatened they feel. The thriving trans person is the threat. I just want Hunter Schaefer to hear this and say, hey, Emily, we're friends now. Yeah. (laughs) Sure. You know? (laughs) (laughs) I could never have anticipated that we would evolve from bathroom bills to healthcare bans as quickly as we have. Like, obviously, knowing that and knowing that the future is unpredictable 
where should we be on guard against this movement going next? Like what freaks you out in terms of like where this could evolve? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that we should continue to be really alarmed about the healthcare bans. Like, because I think one thing that we can expect to see is that the age is going to continue to increase. Now it's up to 18 in some states, 19 in Alabama. There are some that have 21. There are some that have 25. And we know it's not about age because the people who are defending these bans are opposed to healthcare for trans people always. They're starting with young people, but they're certainly not going to end there. And so I think we have to be very cognizant of that. That's not the end. And I also think that there is a strategy to continue to try to cultivate in court these constitutional rights not to share space with trans people or these other legal arguments that say that cis people's rights are violated when trans people are included. And that's really scary because if they win, say, at the Supreme Court, then that doesn't just mean that states can discriminate. It means they have to discriminate because the Constitution trumps. The federal Constitution does. So if there is some sort of privacy right that a cis person has to be in a bathroom that does not have a trans person in it, then no state, no school district could protect a trans person. We would be forcibly banned from all of these places, and that would be a very scary outcome. And the only way that we could undo that is for the Supreme Court to overturn itself or for this country to amend the Constitution. Neither of those things will happen in a lifetime. So I think just watching how quickly things are devolving and sort of being on high alert, because yes, in 2016, the bathroom bill in North Carolina passed. Another anti-trans bill did not pass again until 2020 with HB 500 in Idaho, which was a sports ban. And Idaho also passed a ban on changing birth certificates that year. So we went one in 2016, two in 2020, and now it's just like, dozens. And they're happening fast. They're more aggressive. There's more bills moving. There's more bills introduced. And I think that the pacing and the contours should really terrify us. And of course, this is happening at the same time that abortion is being banned, that books are being banned, that votes are being suppressed. It's a scary, scary time. One thing that gives me hope, I guess, is this just seems transparently cynical to me. I think a lot of people, even people who might theoretically agree with these sorts of bans, see how cynical it seems To what degree is this driven by true believers and to what degree is this driven by people who are facing primary challenges? To what degree is this driven by political concerns? Because I do feel like that sense of cynicism in some ways helps undercut some of this. It's a both and. There are true believers involved, for sure. And there's a lot of people who just don't want to be primaried from the right. I've spent a lot of time in the Texas legislature and the Tennessee legislature and the South Dakota legislature. And, you know, you talk to a lot of people who like genuinely either don't know what is going on or don't care, but they push these bills to stay with their caucus or because they're threatened from the right. And so I think if we change that, the political reality is that there are lots of people who are not true believers, period. Much like the early 2000s where they used marriage bans as a way to mobilize their base, this is another example of that. And then there are true believers. (laughs) There's the non-Christian right true believers, like the anti-trans feminists, the turf people. And then there's the Christian right true believers. And those are powerful forces too. They're global forces. And the anti-trans discourse, the control over bodies that we are seeing, that is part of a fascist project too. You know, it is what you see in Hungary, in Brazil, in the UK, in the US, as things go far to the right, this anti-gender ideology was what is called globally and sort of in the US, the anti-trans movement is part of the rise of the far right globally. And so that is deep and ideological and powerful. And so something to be tapped into. 
I live in a blue state. Right now, I have pretty good protections. I have pretty good protections to my healthcare. I can use the bathroom without fear. I have all these things that are sort of true for me living in California that would not be true if I was back in my home state of South Dakota. I would be scared all the time there that something would pass that would take that away from me. You know, most of the people listening to this are cis because most people are cis in the world, as strange as that is to me to believe. So sad. I do kind of like want to say, what can I, as a trans person in a blue state, what can our cis listeners, what can they do to help? What's the best way to support trans people? What's the best way to push back on this stuff? You know, because I think we've talked a lot about marriage equality. The gap between those bans of 2004 and Obergefell is 11 years. That's a really quick turnaround. And a lot of that was just because straight people were like, this doesn't seem so bad, honestly. How do we like make that shift happen with all these forces aligned against us? Like, What's the best way that we can sort of support the people who need the support they need? First and foremost, I think that what everyone can do is sort of the micro discursive changes in their communities, like push back on misinformation and challenge yourself and others to really think about how we're enforcing the gender binary all the time, because we have to change the world that we're living in. We have to make more space for people to be open to the possibility that they could self-determine their identity and meaning attach their bodies in new ways. Like stop asking people if they're having a boy or a girl. Stop thinking that you know everything about a person because of how they look and what you presume their gender to be. And start challenging the idea that, oh, well, we need to have these sports bills because men are better, stronger, faster than women and and trans women are men. Like just challenge both of those foundational premises. Like we all can do that. And I think that's part of the resistance here. It's a cultural one. And it's one that we all have a part in performing and doing. So that's number one. Number two is engage politically. And that isn't just go vote. That's not what I mean. Look at what's happening at your state and local level. Push your government to be better. And if you live in a blue state, there's lots more you can do. Push for better healthcare. Push for more robust access push for supportive policies. I live in New York City. I send my kid to New York City public schools. Lots of things could be better. So there's that. And then there's also engage in state and local politics nationally. And what I mean by that is even if you live in a blue state, you can help phone bank in a red state. You can help get calls into people who are voters in Texas and make sure they know they can make constituent calls to their lawmakers. And then if you live in those states, engage your lawmakers. Tell them not to pass anti-trans bills. That is a very powerful intervention that we need more of. The right has very effectively organized from school boards to DA races to gerrymandering state legislatures for a very long time, and there has not been a counterpoint on the left at all. And then invest in trans-led work. We need to send resources into the trans-led organizations. And resources might be money, but it might be skills. It might be information. If you're a doctor in one state, like maybe you have a role to play in providing training to doctors. If one clinic gets shut down, can you, as an endocrinologist, help train people in how to do labs, in how to get people the care that they need? If you're a therapist, can you provide support for trans people out of state through digital means? So I think there's a lot of things to do. It's change your language, push back on misinformation, organize at the state and local level in your communities and beyond, and invest resources into trans-led work, into protecting and saving and defending trans lives. And we can all do all of it. Chase, thank you so much for joining me. And be sure to tell Hunter Schaefer hi next time you talk to her. (laughs) And thanks for everything. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. 
Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And A.M. Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that, too. We are curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And also, if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.